1: hey everybody welcome back you players playwrights do do that's amigos amigos everybody in between this is episode 87 episode 87 whoa of game of crimes murph who who would have thought it who would have thunk it
2: you know, we, I tell you what—we're so grateful for all our listeners that you still come and listen to our silliness, and and uh, but man, we do bring some fantastic guests on here.
1: Yeah, you players and you players responsible. We have a new team on board, Audio Boom, and they are bringing us great partners. You're going to hear about some of our new sponsors of the show, like Manscaped and Better Health, <laughs> Better Help. H E L P, so you guys make sure you get that right. Better help and that's Manscaped. Right. So you're going to hear some of those ads. So we appreciate you guys listening in. Take advantage of those deals. But in the meantime, guys, thank you for joining us. Real quick housekeeping before we get started, because that's what the script says. Go, head on over to Apple and Spotify. There are these things called stars. Five is good if you guys, you know, give us some feedback and give us some honest feedback. You know, we we've had some other stuff. We don't, Murph and I've, you know, you can't call us names, you can't hurt our feelings, but we just really appreciate. It. We put a lot of effort into this. And if you're only going to listen to two seconds and just give us a one star, come on, guys. You know, help us out just a little bit. Mm-hmm. We're not begging for anything. We're just saying give us a fair shot. That's all we're saying. Give us a fair shot, listen, and then leave a review. And we would really appreciate it. As I say in the South, appreciate it. <laughs> I understood that. You said that.
2: I understood everything you just said.
1: That's right, son. That's right. Also head on over to our website, Game Especially for this episode when we start talking about Michael Hearns and his Cade Taylor novels, you're going to see all the novels there and pictures of about 22 million in cash. So head on over to Game of Follow us on that thing they call social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook, and the Instagram. But I'm telling you, Murph, I'm telling you where you need to be. Well, we're both there, is on mm-hmm. patreon.com/slash Game of Crimes. We've had some great episodes. like I said, we just finished up our epic 15-part. Sixteen hours worth of the real D. A. Narcos on the Real D. A. Narcos Cali Edition. Murph, we've got you and JP's original edition. Twelve hours, going deeper than anybody. Boldly going where no man has gone before. That's <laughs> what my Chris uh, That's what they said during my colonoscopy. Um, oh, oh. <laughs> Speaking of colonoscopy, episode 12, end of episode 12 on the Cali edition <laughs> might have been. <laughs> if y'all
2: heard that, let us know what you think about that. We'll pass it on to Chris.
1: We'll pass it on to Chris. But we do some stuff. We analyze 911 calls. We did the Alex Murdoch. 911 call uh, in our 911, what's your emergency? So that's where you put on your um, listening ears. That's where you become an audio detective. And we determine, hey, is this truthful or deceptive? What can we learn from this? And there's been a lot of twists and turns on a lot of those calls. We've got great stuff on Patreon. Uh, we've got our Q&A, which is always the fun one. We're already, Murph, we're already loaded up for March. And I mm-hmm. haven't even put out people telling them we need questions for March. So... Nice. We are already loaded for bear, as they say.
2: Yes, sir. You know, that's one of the funniest, the funnest. There's a new word. That's one of the most fun things we do on Patreon is, is we haven't turned down a question yet.
1: Nope. We've had to divide some up. Thank you, Alex Hall.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of like a war piece of questions.
1: Yeah, but hey, but but that's, you know what? We appreciate that. Somebody takes the, somebody who, we like I say, with Patreon, you give us two things, time and money. We can replace money. We can't replace time. And when somebody goes to that effort, we answer every question. So thanks to all of you. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but you know, remember, this is a show about crime. We talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. We take the story seriously, but.
2: We don't take ourselves serious. And if you haven't heard us before, you're going to see what we're talking about here shortly.
1: That's right. So, guess what time it is, Murph? Guess what time it is? Guess what time it is?
2: What time is it? It's time for...
1: Small Town Police Blotter! Yay, the crowd goes wild. Hey, I decided uh, we had some feedback. I decided I would throw out a few strange laws coming to us from around the country and see what you think. Steve, did you know there is no drunk skiing allowed in Wyoming? State law holds that no person shall move uphill on any passenger tramway or use any ski slope or trail, while such person's ability to do so is impaired by the consumption of alcohol or the use of any illicit controlled substance or other drug.
2: Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, you never know when you can, there might be an elk or a moose or whatever is out there on the trail.
1: Or, Steve, there might be a Bigfoot. Bigfoot hunters beware. Skamania, Skamania County, Washington passed a law in 1969 deeming the slaying of Bigfoot to be a felony and punishable by five years in prison. The law was later amended designating Bigfoot also as an endangered species.
2: (laughs) It's nice to know what takes priority out there, isn't
1: it? Hey, well, Steve, this is from your neck of the woods. According to the Tennessee Constitution, it's illegal to hold public office if a person does any of the following. Fight a duel or knowingly be the bearer of a challenge to fight a duel or send or accept a challenge for that purpose or be an aider or a better in fighting a duel.
2: Well, there you go, now you have it. Stop the dueling.
1: And Steve, what is one of the most annoying vermin out there that has wings and craps all over everything? Oh, pigeons. Pigeons can be annoying, but in North Dakota, you needed permission to exterminate one. State (laughs) law holds that no person, firm, or corporation shall exterminate pigeons or other harmful wild birds without first having obtained a permit from the Fargo Health Department.
2: Yeah, I think that's true in a lot of places throughout the U.S., but still funny.
1: <laughs> and Steve, uh, Idaho, most of us assume, <laughs> Steve, you would think that eating fellow humans doesn't fly. However, though, in Idaho, it's clarified in the law. Though the law says it's it, it's a legitimate fence to have committed cannibalism under extreme life-threatening conditions as the only apparent means of survival.
2: Oh, I mean, they had to put that in a. I guess you do have to put that in a law. <laughs> cannibalism.
1: Who uh, would sunk it? Who would have thunk it? Hey, real quick, too. We're going to take a quick tour. Forest Grove, Oregon. Got some stuff from their police blotter. This is real stuff. Just happened recently. Population 26,258. Salute. February 10th, Steve. A caller reported a group of men loitering about in a local park, one of whom was relieving his bladder in the parking lot. The man explained to officers that the bathroom was in use and he really, really needed to go. Officers offered suggestions for more appropriate actions should a future situation arrive. That was February 10th, Steve, followed by February 11th. A caller reported residents in a neighborhood apartment were walking loudly.
2: Walking loudly.
1: (laughs) Walking loudly. And guess what happened? Tap
2: shoes on, tapping on. Tap shoes, maybe they were,
1: you know, a little Gregory Hines action, you know, skipping (laughs) away there. February 13th, Steve, a caller reported they were experiencing injury on account of electricity coursing through their homes. Officers found no issues with the fuse box outlets or any other electrical apparatuses, nor did the caller show any visible signs of injury.
2: I got to tell you that one related story that when I was growing up that we, at our church, there was a a man who was a master electrician and he worked for the local power company. And and we were just sitting around one evening telling funny stories. And he said, I said, what's the funniest thing you happen, you know, with with a a power company? It's like, well... People call in and they make all kinds of claims. And one lady called in and said, if you don't get out here and check my lines right now, I'm going to unscrew all the light bulbs and let the electricity pour out.
1: (laughs) Teach us a lesson, why don't you? (laughs) Well, Steve, that lady may have been this next one from February 16th. Officers were called to a local lounge where a woman was slumped over a video poker machine. She was fine medically, just intoxicated. Police were called to a residence where a man was reportedly unconscious and non-responsive. This is you. On contact, the man was just fine, just enjoying a very relaxing nap. There you go. (laughs) And the final one, Steve, night shit off. (laughs) Night shit. (laughs) (laughs) There's all sorts of shit that happens on the night shift. There you go. There you go. You know, the night shift. Mm -hmm. Night shift officers were called to check on a woman who was reportedly yelling at people for standing too close to her park vehicle in an apartment complex. On arrival, the one clarified she was not yelling at anyone in particular, but dispelling a spirit standing next to the car, no crime, and she agreed to quiet down.
2: Oh, Lord. Was her name Karen?
1: (laughs) 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 Sorry. And thus endeth the reading for today. Hey, but before we get into Game of Crimes... Make sure you head on over to our Game of Crimes fan page run by our favorite mafia queen, Sandy Salvato. Just answer a couple questions, guys. Just get close. Get in the ballpark. Uh, Just even tell them your blood type. You know, for this one, this week, just tell them, hey, your blood—tell them what your blood type is. And if you don't know, say, I don't know my blood type. But just answer a couple questions. If you are deemed worthy of entry, you'll head on over to the Inner Sanctum. A lot of good stuff happens there. A lot of good conversations. a lot of good memes are exchanged, and a lot of smack talking occurs.
2: It is. It's and it's a fun website. You go on. I mean, it's, well, I don't know if you call it a website, but anyway, it's a lot of fun in there. And and if you go political or religious, or you do something that Sandy doesn't like, you will suffer the wrath. You will go. Good job, You're Sandy.
1: Gone. <laughs> gone. Just like what is the color of your? You know, what is your favorite color? Anyway, you have to understand Monty Python to get that one. Anyway, Steve. Speaking about Monty Python, which has no bearing to our next uh, uh, guest, other than they both both their names start with M. Michael Hearn's. Yep, this is unique. Usually we reach out, but Michael was so impressed by us, um, I guess. But he reached out to you, right?
2: Of course, he. Yeah, he reached out to me on LinkedIn. Uh, he liked what he heard on the podcast. Michael has written three books, which you can find on our our book page uh, at GameOfCrimes.com. dot com. He. Uh, is a little bit different in the fact that he got into narcotics at, a, reg- at a, a very early age, and he he worked in Coral Gables Police Department, which is right close to downtown Miami. I yep. uh, had the honor of uh, pleasure of going down there and working some cases. It's beautiful, uh, beautiful place. But the things that he got involved with is, I mean, wait, till, Morgan, you already alluded to twenty two million dollar Caesar. Check out the pictures on our on our uh, Game of com and see him standing behind twenty Game
1: of Crimes dot com. That's Game what I of Crimes Podcast dot com. That's Say it with me, Murph. Game of Crimes Podcast.com.
2: Uh, everybody, excuse me, man. I'm gonna give uh, I'm gonna give him some sign language here.
1: We don't want if you go to Game of Crimes, <laughs> I don't know where it's gonna send you. You can go to evilwascoming.com that'll also bring you back. Yeah, but this was unique too because he reached out to us. Yeah. But I'll tell you, interesting stuff. There's Hollywood involved, there's a movie involved, there's three novels involved, 22 million in cash, serial killers. But the only way they're gonna find out about it, Murph, the only way they're gonna hear it is if I ask you. Are you ready to play the biggest, baddest, most dangerous, Hollywood-friendly, the Cuban, Cade Taylor-novel-friendly game of all, the <laughs> Game of Crimes?
2: I don't know if I can do all that, but everybody get in, sit down, shut up, and hold on. Let's find out about Michael Hearn's career. It's pretty interesting.
1: Hey, you guys. Another fascinating podcast episode is headed your way right now. And What we did is, um, you know, I thought it was a little Fed-centric, so I tasked Murph. I said, Murph, find a real cop. Find, find somebody who did real work. <laughs> and so we started looking at the state and local level, and, and uh, we found this dude named Michael Hearns. Right, Murph? Did you find him? Did we find him? How did we find him? Actually, Michael found us.
2: He emailed oh. me, or was it email or LinkedIn, Michael?
0: You know, I used to be a detective, so I just, I did find you guys. Um, Actually, uh, (laughs) you popped up on my LinkedIn, and uh, I I was, um, and that's how I got introduced to you through your LinkedIn profile.
2: You know, we get, we do get uh, a lot of people contacting us, and we vet our, you know, we vet everybody to see what their background looks like. And, Yours looked uh, very suspicious. And we thought, well, hell, he'd be a great guy to have on the show. So
1: we reached <laughs> out a to a little Michael. dodgy. Just, just perfect for us. Yeah. Yes. I'm, in
0: a, I'm in a new marriage of a couple of years. And the adult children in the marriage always say all the time to my wife, you yeah, know, he, he's shady. And I'm like, I'm not shady. I'm, this is just what I do. No, you you have a guy on your phone named Black Bag Steve. How can you not be shady? I'm like, yeah.
2: Well, how do they know you have that Black Bag Steve on there?
0: Because we were talking one time about TV or something, and I said, "Yeah, you know, you just have to have people who are black bag people." And they're like, "Well, what's that?" I goes, "It's someone who goes in and does the things you need to do you can't do by yourself."
2: There you go. And it was anyway. We reached out. It turns out Michael is uh, he has a very, varied, uh, a very varied background. Twenty, I think, twenty seven years as police officer in Coral Gables.
0: Yeah, 27 right? years, Coral Gables, Miami, Florida, uh, 10 years detached to the DEA and U.S. Customs Service.
2: And you survive all that crap. And it's, uh, you know, and then he's going to tell us more. I don't I don't want to give everything away now, but we do want to say well, That welcome.
1: would be good, Murph, because the, we're here to interview him, not you about him, because he's here. We can just ask him.
2: <laughs> well, th- see, this is what it sounds like when you're talking, Morgan, and I'm just sitting there taking a nap.
1: <laughs> paper. That's why I have to talk, Murph. You're snoozing. I have to hit the po- I have to hit the mute button on you half the time.
2: Yeah, but Michael, it's a, it is a true honor to have you on here. So thank you very much, brother.
0: Happy to be here. Happy, happy to be here. So we're going to take a
1: journey here uh, and we're going to start off like we normally do uh, because there's some interesting things you got. We have a lot of people come on that have books. You've got some books slightly different too. We've got some uh, detective books we're going to talk about. Um, Your your new thriller series, Detective Cade Taylor, and we're going to see how much of that is actually biographical, loosely biographical. Maybe, maybe not. And I know you're working on an anti-money laundering book, but before we get into all of that, Cosa Nostra, thing of ours. How'd you get started in this thing of ours? Were you out, you know, skinny dipping in the, you know, ocean one night and a couple cops arrested you and you say, Hey, this is what I want to do. How did you get involved in this thing of ours?
0: Um, I was a former soccer player. I was pretty fast. They were not gonna catch me. Um how I That's what They all in- say,
1: Michael, you know that. Too. You're not going <laughs> to catch me. Then they turn around and run into a tree. And you go, okay, yeah. Skippy. <laughs> yeah.
0: I, uh, I actually got into this because my first love was aviation marketing and advertising. And coming out of college, I worked for one of the large major airlines. And then with uh, deregulation and other downsizing in the industry, I needed and wanted a recession proof job. So I applied at uh, the city of Coral Gables, the city of Miami, and the U.S. Customs Service uh, TEA agent. I got accepted by all three. Don't ask me how. Don't ask me why. I chose Coral Gables, the um, the the SAC at the time of U.S. Customs. Pat O'Brien, he had a heart attack that I chose Coral Gables over Customs. But uh, at the time, they were going to put me on a boat off of Vero Beach, and that's not where I wanted to be. So I went to work for Coral Gables, and— um,
1: Hey, hold on. Before you get too far, let's rewind because there's always gold. You you gloss over a lot of stuff and we don't allow that. Let's roll back a little bit. I applied for all three and then I did this stuff. What? So first of all, where'd you go to college at?
0: I went to college at Southern Connecticut State University in New Haven, Connecticut. I'm not from Connecticut. I'm born and raised in Miami. They were a incredible and still have they have an incredible uh, reputation as a soccer powerhouse. and I played in played in and lost four national championships with them. So I'm like the Buffalo Bills of college soccer. and um you know, did my time in New Haven in New Haven, you know, wave in New Haven. Um isn't there another college in New Haven? What's the name of that thing? Qu- um. Quinnipiac. And then there's <laughs> Sacred Heart and then uh there's there's Albertus Magnus and then there's uh I think there's Yale. I think Yale's there, yeah.
1: Yeah, one of those little small co- but you know Henry Lee has got uh his uh institute out there at the University of New Haven, right?
0: I did. I studied under under Dr. Henry Lee and I learned an incredible amount of curse words uh spending my time with him. <laughs> and uh he's he's very knowledgeable, very funny and we 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 hit it off right away because uh, of the New Haven connection. Um he does like to use profanity, though.
1: There's another famous person at New Haven. I don't know if he was there. He, I know he wasn't there when you were there. There's a guy named Bill Tafoya. He's a friend of mine. He was an FBI profiler. He's teaching cybersecurity now. I think he may have retired. He's the only FBI profiler that got the Unabomber profile correct. Out of all of them, he's the only—and he ended up teaching at the University of New Haven. So,
0: Yeah, well, you know, Dr. Henry Lee uh, joked about the profanity, but Dr. Henry Lee created incredible inroads for forensic— uh, Investigations and for crime scene investigations, and uh, he ran the New Haven. uh, He ran the Connecticut State uh, Crime Lab for years. Um, He's he's not a slouch. He's definitely not a slouch. He definitely knows the stuff, and he's built a great program there at University of New Haven.
1: Now, but how did you end up at Connecticut? Are you from Connecticut? Where are you from that
0: you arrived at Connecticut? I was born and raised in Miami, and. Because of my soccer skills, I had some offers to play in different parts of the country. And because of the program was so solid for soccer, I went to uh, Southern Connecticut State University. Didn't really give it much thought when it comes to living conditions, academics, alumni. I was going to say
1: packing. You probably didn't own a parka.
0: (laughs) No, no. I I froze the first year. I remember being cold in August, thinking there's no way I'm going to be able to make it through four years. But I did. Yeah.
1: Dang, that's why I said that's got to be culture shock. It's like the people from Australia, a buddy of mine, they would come over here and nobody had a winter coat, and he said, "Well, we just had the community community coat, mate. You'd go down, there'd be a collection of coats. You pick one your size, you wear it, and then you bring it back when you're done." So
0: yeah, there was incredible cultural shock. I mean, like all the gothic architecture, the just the way people were would refer to things. Like a water fountain was a bubbler, a liquor store <laughs> was a packy, a submarine sandwich was a grinder. And you know, and when you talk about cult, uh, the community codes, that reminds me of Key West. We used to have community cars in Key West, where you just got in them and drove them, and parked them, and moved on. And so, uh, yeah, the community situation works sometimes. But in my case, um, it, it was cold. It was different. It was difficult to get to New Haven. Had to fly in and out of New York a lot, take a lot of trains and buses and things. It, it was, it wasn't a grind, but it's, it, I got through it. You know, I did it.
1: So, what'd you graduate with a degree in?
0: I graduated with a degree in uh, economics, marketing, and with a minor in psychology.
1: So, you went to work. Yeah, you went to work in the airline, but I know you said you wanted to get into something that was recession proof, but was there a law enforcement or police bug in your ear before that? Or did that just arise because when you saw the deregulation and everything happen, you said, hey, I mean, like, did you, I mean, hell, did you get arrested one time in Connecticut and you go, hey, cuffs are cool? I don't know.
0: No, cuffs are cool. I never got arrested. Um, My father was in law enforcement. My father was a a chief of police, and my uncle was NYPD. But truthfully speaking, their influence was negligible. It was just – it was the mid-80s in Miami, and – I just, I had bounced between three different airlines. Every time I start to work for an airline, they would go under or they'd get merged or they'd get acquired by someone else. And I just got tired of, uh and, and it wasn't just me. I was watching other airline employees, you know, get moved around, shuffled around out of work, in of work. And I just didn't want that lifestyle. And I just looked for something that I thought would be steady. I didn't have any aspirations as a young man to be in law enforcement, no.
1: So you're 0 4 in national championships and 0 3 in airlines. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody yeah. hiring you has got to be going, oh, yeah. dude, if we hire him, we're going out of business. Yeah. I'm yeah.
0: to see a track you know, emerge here. This, I am what they call a big loser. <laughs> <laughs>
1: right, so, um, but, so give us an idea too. Everybody knows where Miami is. Give us an idea where Coral Gables is at in relation to Miami.
0: Well, uh, what a lot of people don't realize about Miami-Dade is that the county itself is bigger and larger than the state of Rhode Island, both in geography and in population. And the city of Miami is the largest municipality in Miami-Dade County, followed by other 26, 27 municipalities, one of them being Coral Gables, Miami Beach, Miami Springs, Miami Shores. So Coral Gables is literally centrally located. It's just south of the airport. Every major thoroughfare if you're not on the expressway goes to coral gables and the university of miami uh, actually sits within the boundaries of the city of coral gables
1: wow so i mean you're getting so you get done you get back there now all these airlines you're working for um are they all located in and around like miami airport and stuff is that why you came back or did you have to
0: move other places no i was in miami i was in miami
2: so, yeah, the Gables is is a it's it's a neat place down there. It's it's more like a, I think eclectic would probably be the right word to use to describe Coral Gables. It's a little bit of modern, it's a little bit of old, it's a little bit of Art Deco, it's a little bit of like a hodgepodge of everything. But that's what gives it the personality it has, and it's a beautiful place.
0: It is beautiful. the uh, The city's founder is George Merrick, and he had a vision for Coral Gables of having different um, ethnic based. Communities. Uh, there's a Spanish section. There's a Chinese section. There's a there's a, a Dutch section. There's a French section, and the architecture re- reflects all that. But traditionally, the cities are very deep, deeply um, tropical foliage. Uh, lots of trees. Lots of water. We had forty miles of inland canals in Coral Gables, Jeez. and um, Steve knows from his time in Miami. Coral Gables goes from Flagler Street all the way down the Coral Reef Drive. So that's 154 city blocks long. People don't recognize or realize how long Coral Gables is. They think it's just one street that they call Miracle Mile, where all the shopping is traditionally at. And they don't realize that the city sprawls. It kind of sprawls like a like an ice cream cone on a summer sidewalk. It just kind of goes in different directions. And it doesn't have any rhyme or reason in its streets So unless you know what you're doing and you've really been versed in the, in the geography, you will get in that town and you will get lost.
1: Well, not only that, but I can't imagine if you're getting into a pursuit, what jurisdiction are you in? Hell, I
0: got oh, no pursuits, idea. Pursuits were the best <laughs> in the early days because you would you would get – like the city of Miami would come across on our inner city radio and you'd hear the guy go, I just passed a big tree. <laughs> woo, 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 woo. I just went by a fountain. <laughs> I don't know where I am. Give me a Gables guy. And you know, all <laughs> you, know, you hear is like, I, I just passed a bus. <laughs> That's
1: hilarious. Yeah, I know. Hey, now, let's 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 kind of put a point in time for both you guys. Murph, when did you arrive in Miami, as I'm getting you right as a sip of coffee, or were you falling asleep again? I don't—they look both the same.
2: It's both. It's—you um, know, I'm using—this is my one of my gifts from one of my kids. It's a uh, powered, you know, electrically heated coffee mug, so your coffee stays warm. It's pretty cool. I got there in November 87 and less, left in June 91.
1: So, did you overlap during that time, Michael?
0: We did. We did. What year did
2: you come on Gables?
0: 88. Oh, yeah. Uh, I was 88, and um, I was – it's funny because, I mean, I, I, I don't want this I, – I, first of all, I have no, no say in the matter. I'm I'm thinking you guys may not want this to be a name-dropping uh, podcast, but we, we know a lot of the same people.
1: Hey, look, don't worry. Yeah. The King and I love name-droppers. Go ahead. Well,
0: I will say this to Steve. <laughs> I, I tell people this all the time when I teach classes. I truthfully was, was raised, uh, you know, I was raised with money launderers and drug traffickers. And sometimes the road a man chooses to avoid his destiny, he finds, you know, on that road. And there was a kid I grew up with who lived catty corner behind me. A super funny kid. We had a, we had a, you know, we were, I grew up on a street with 13 boys. Okay. We were, we were like Lord of the flies. Okay.
2: Yeah, you had your own gang there.
0: Oh, man, it was it was rough. And I was dead smack in the middle. And everybody was very athletic, and everybody was always out here playing in the streets, swimming in the canals, causing commotion. You know, And this one kid was pretty funny and a uh, great athlete, had a super good arm, uh, great quarterback, great baseball pitcher. But he went to a different high school, so I kind of lost track of him. He was two years older than me, and that was uh, Alex Dominguez. So Alex, Alex Dominguez and I were grew up together and ran the streets together as kids. Oh, and then look we're he, gonna have he,
2: Alex on the show down the road. He, he is hilarious.
0: So he, oh God, is he hilarious? He's hilarious <laughs> as you can't imagine. Well and so for
1: for those folks not inside baseball here,
0: let everybody know real quick who Alex Dominguez is. Well Alex Dominguez is a is a is a retired DEA agent. Yeah. And Alex we worked together
2: in uh, SOD. Special Alex had division. had
0: worked for a bank in Brickell. And he always it was an Italian bank and he always wanted to go to Italy. So his big hope was to be the Italian liaison from the DEA to Italy. And then I get in the in this business and a couple of years later we go to do a deal together and then look across the table and there's Alex and there's me and we're like, Oh, hey. <laughs> How about that? Small world. Small <laughs> world, man.
2: I don't know if you know this, Michael, but uh Alex is trying uh, I haven't talked to him in a couple of years but he was uh, trying out stand-up com- being a stand-up comedian and everybody that I've talked to that's gone to his the show they said he's as funny as he's ever been he just I mean, he, come out he, of their tears running he, down your cheeks.
0: Was, he was I mean we were all funny as kids but he was extremely funny and as funny as it's funny it's, it's, it's odd that you say that because my brother uh, was a roommate with a very famous stand-up comic who's out there now doing quite well and, um, well, you
1: just can't drop that. Okay. G- yeah, give the it. Okay. Give us the name. <laughs> uh, my
0: brother was roommates with Dennis Regan, who was a writer for King of Queens and he's a stand up comic. And his brother is Brian Regan. And Brian Regan is now one of the top comics in the U.S. So the four of us, before I got in law enforcement, would sit around the condominium or apartment and just bounce jokes off each other and stuff. And Brian is, uh, Brian's. He, he, Brian's huge. He's, he, he, was, oh, he was David Letterman's favorite comic, uh, Jerry Seinfeld's favorite comic, uh, as Brian and Brian's clean, by the way, everything is G rated. There's not a single curse word in his routine, and uh, he's 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 you know, revered. it's funny
1: you mention that. I find we, when we'll watch Netflix or stuff, I find myself gravitating to people who just keep it clean, like Nathan Bargatze, Jim Gaffigan, you know.
0: Nathan's coming to here where I live in a month and a half, so I've stopped watching him because I want to go see a show. Nathan and Nathan is very funny, too. But Brian Regan is the top comic in America right now, definitely. Yeah.
1: And he's from Tennessee, Steve. He's
0: from Tennessee. Nathan
1: Bargatze is Tennessee.
0: We're probably related. <laughs> yeah.
1: I don't know. Merce family tree looks like a ruler. (laughs) There's no branches. It's like a
2: twig on a tree. It's one branch.
1: (laughs) Sister Uh, wives. Yeah. (laughs) Well, well, that's the big question in Tennessee and West Virginia. If I divorce my wife, is she still my sister? We'll get a legal opinion on that later.
2: And the answer is yes.
1: Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, but so let's go back then to um, you get out of college, you work these things. Um, why did you said you didn't want to be on a boat, but why'd you pick Coral Gables? You said you applied for customs, DEA, and Coral, and you were picked you were accepted to all three.
0: I, I applied to the city of Miami, uh, Coral Gables, and I took the Treasury Enforcement Agent test, which when I don't know how it is now, but back then you went into a hiring pool of Secret Service, customs, and IRS, and customs pulled me out of the hat.
1: Hold on, Murph, I know you've got a story, but I have some breaking news. Everybody, hang on. Manscaped now sells beard products. That's right. They're once again revolutionizing men's grooming with the brand new Beard Hedger Pro Kit. From a beard trim to a fresh shave, the tech behind the Beard Hedger Pro Kit, it's going to make me look good, make my signature beard look good. You know how I look on TV. I'd say how I look on radio, but you don't see me on radio. Now you can finally use Manscaped products, Steve, to make the drapes match the carpeting by going to manscaped.com using code GOC for 20% off and free shipping. So guys, you know, let's, let's do it. Let's tame that mane. No one wants a weird beard. So say goodbye to all your stubble trouble with the Manscaped Pro Beard Kit.
2: And you know what? This comes with, it's cordless. So you can take it right in the shower with you. It has a rotary wheel that gives you 20 hair cutting lengths. And this is the cool thing, all with one guard. You don't have to have all those extra accessories in your drawer. You can just get in there and take care of business. And on top of that, it's waterproof. So you take it right in the shower with you.
1: That's right. And look, this Pro Kit doesn't end there, folks. But wait, there's more. They've created four dermatologist-tested formulations for your post-trim care. You've got the beard shampoo and the conditioner. Remember, all your hair is different. Your beard hair is different from your hair. you got to take care of it that way. So they replace natural oils, they moisturize, and they promote beard health.
2: You know, it doesn't stop there. Manscape is also going to include the beard oil, an essential piece of your main facial accessory. Nobody wants a dry and brittle beard, right? We don't want nah. you looking like that, Morgan. And on top of that, you know what? They're going to include the beard balm, a pomade that shapes, styles, moisturizes, and tames for that sculpted look.
1: And also, guys, remember, the Pro Beard Kit comes with three free gifts, a beard brush, a comb, and scissors to ensure your beard is ready to impress. So get 20% off and free shipping with the code GOC at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use code GOC, Manscaped Beard Hedger. One stroke, one guard, 20 lengths. Okay, and now back to our regularly scheduled podcast. Uh, Murph, go ahead. I know you had something to add.
2: I took that same test. I was a city cop in West Virginia. I took that test, and, and several months later, I got a letter from the IRS that said, you don't meet our qualifications. And I, th- I thought, that's damn good, because I can't balance a checkbook.
0: <laughs> well, you need to hold on to that letter. Every time they ask you for taxes, just hold it up. I don't meet your qualifications.
2: <laughs>
1: yeah, I not have I that,
2: that much foresight.
0: <laughs> yeah, but you know what? I'm, I'm kind of thinking
1: with the IRS. They're so narrow-minded. They can see through a keyhole with both eyes, as somebody told me one time. Yeah, they're not— the,
0: They've got rigid, their
1: own. They're a, they're a small nonprofit organization. Um, so you picked Coral Gables. So when you got on, tell us a little bit too about
0: Coral Gables City, like the
1: the size of the city,
0: how big is the PD? You know, the the PD now is about two hundred and thirty uh, sworn officers. When I got hired, it was about a hundred and forty. And the big reason why that growth occurred in those twenty seven years is the city itself grew vertically. Um, the lot the city has its own skyline now whereas it didn't have it when i was there and the city grew because uh a lot of it grew because of the narcotic work we did we brought in a lot of resources through the work we did which expanded um different uh specialized units and other things that we started to do and then you know Kalia um comes along and there's certification issues that need to be done. So there's a lot of growth there too. No acronyms. Got to define all acronyms. Let people um, commission
1: for the accreditation of law enforcement agencies.
0: Thanks. Cause I'm not a big fan. Thanks for saying that. Yeah.
1: Look, <laughs> that, that's one thing. I mean, it's, I, there's also, but see, Khalil also has another meaning. It's the communications assistance for law enforcement act. So one way it's accreditation. The other way it's lawful intercept.
0: Oh, this one was for accreditation. So that growth came, um, we had a lot of of movement, uh, and we also access. We also annexed uh, larger parts of unincorporated Miami Dade County into our jurisdiction too. So,
1: so what was it like when you got hired on? How many people did they hire?
0: How many people did they hire when they hired me? Is that what you're asking yeah. me? How many um, were in your class? In in my class, my academy class had about. Had about 55 people in it. And of that 55, there were four of us from Coral Gables. The rest are from from Miami, South Miami, Homestead, Miami Springs, um, North Miami, different municipalities in Miami-Dade County.
1: And and obviously, like a regional academy, where was the academy at?
0: The academy back then was held uh, at the Miami-Dade North Community College campus. Back then... Uh, there were three community colleges under one umbrella: Miami Dade South, Miami Dade North, Miami Dade Downtown. Now the academy, I do believe, is held out at Miami Dade Police Headquarters. But back then, it was kind of out there. And how long was it? I don't remember. I had to. If I had to guess, I think it was about 16 weeks. You know, it was about four months. So when you when you applied and after you started getting into
1: it you know, like you said, you hadn't really had a, a lot of influence. At what point did it click to say, yeah, this is what I wanted to do? Cause I know you wanted something that was recession proof. Did it take getting out of the academy or at what point during the academy did you go? Yeah, I was, I, I was built for
0: this. This is me. Uh, truthfully, that never happened. Um, I actually, I looked at it as a ritual I, I was kind of like ahead of the curve on thinking. I thought that the city of Coral Gables invested a lot of time and money and effort into me. And there were a lot of veiled threats in the academy of like, we'll be here all night until you get this right. And I'd be in the back of my head going, no, we're not. They're not paying you overtime to be here. We're not going to be here all night. You know, they would say things like, you run to that fence and bring me back a blade of grass. And I would jog and they'd be like, I said, run. And that stop. I'm sorry, sir. What run? Yes. Okay. And I knew that it was all kind of like ritualistic and it's designed. Um, I listened uh, to the SWAT officer podcast you had from Los Angeles And I listened to what he said about the academy. It's true. It's a weed-and-out process. They want to see if you can handle the stress, the aggravation, the commotion, the um, rigors early. And if you can't, they don't think you're going to make it on the street. So it's kind of a weed-and-out process.
2: And that's the place to do it. You're absolutely right.
0: Yeah. And I knew that. And so you know, I finished very high. I didn't finish at the top of my class academically, but I finished – pretty high and I finished pretty high in the fitness and pretty high in everything and um, how old were you when you entered the academy uh, I was probably I was probably about 25 or six cause I'd had the airline experience behind me. So I literally had some people my age, I had a couple of people older and like you, you would literally be like 29 or 30 and you're like, God, that guy's an old man. And then we had like one kid in there who couldn't even afford to buy his own bullets cause he was, uh, underage. He was like, uh, 19 or something. So it varied, um, the, the academy was great in the sense of a spirit decor. You you, you bonded. You, you, you understood that you had a common goal. Um, the people in the academy and my academy class were all good people. Um, it was very discerning when one of the instructors came in one day and looked at the 55 of us and said, one of you will not be here in three years. One of you will be dead. And we all kind of looked around at each other. At that point, you're like thinking – If this guy's true, if this guy's right, who is it? You know, and and true to form, uh, one of us uh, passed away uh, three months after academy graduation. So, line of duty or something else? Yeah, Uh, suicide. Wow. Yeah,
1: you know, and that's we'll we'll talk about that later. We we, and we've talked to several people about that. That was even back in the '80s when I started '82. um, It was one of the taboo things; you never talked about it. It was the unwritten thing.
0: Uh, I saw a lot of it in my career. Well,
1: like with a lot of us too, I've lost more friends to suicide than line of duty. So it's like – so let's get on to something a little happier. Let me ask you this. As soon as you got out of the academy, did the academy go
0: out of business? (laughs) The academy did not go out of business, but (laughs) the second I graduated in the city of Miami – and they weren't all Miami officers. One was a trooper – um,
2: he had a separate class with a special wrench that would take lug nuts off of all tires. He had his own five gallon it, gas. can. A, he's trying to make things, a, he's right?
1: trying to make a trooper joke and it's you, leave the comedy to professionals, Murph, like you know, Jim Gaffigan.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, Gaffigan. See, of,
2: well, of us three, let's see, who was a trooper? Hmm.
0: Well, I was just gonna say one was a trooper and like three of our city Miami officers, they all got shot in the line of duty like within within like two weeks of my academy graduation that was going on in the Miami. So it was very very eye opening and very like, hey man, you know, this is not a game. And I never thought of it as a game. Never looked at it as a game, not from day one. But the reality of um, going out on those scenes when your when sh- your shoes are still shiny from the academy was 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 eye opening, you know.
2: You know and that's that's a call to reality also for rookies is you know get me a senior partner <laughs> let me let me just soak up all the knowledge he has cuz I want to survive this. Yeah. You know you come out there and you think you're some big stud and, and the reality is you could go home in a body bag.
1: Well, we know that it was the heyday of a lot of stuff. I mean they were Coke was coming in. I mean it was starting to st- and so you were kind of getting in there during that time. That's the Miami Vice days. You know, that's the a lot of stuff going on and I mean that's the I, I don't know I don't know how you would define what the heyday was, but definitely the eighties were like right smack dab in the middle of it, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, Miami has a history of 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 smuggling and and nefarious people. You know, we we can go back to Al Capone and his residence on Palm Island. Um South Florida, Florida as a whole was founded by, you know, people oftentimes it, it it's drop off it's a drop off point. Of the United States, or as Homer Simpson says, it's the wang of the United States. It's it, it it is you know it's the last place and and Steve knows from his time down there it's it's flat and it's full of water, so it's ideal for boats and it's ideal to land airplanes and it's just a, a great uh, logistical geographical spot for Central and South American um, transport and import. You know,
2: it was. I tell you what, man, it was. When I got there in eighty seven, it I was a fish out of water because I grew up in Tennessee and West Virginia and I'd never seen anything like South Florida and just fell in love with the place. That's why my wife and I, we retired to Florida. We just fell in love back in eighty seven and, and knew we'd always return here. Once it gets in your blood, man, you just you can't get away from it. And you're talking about the the dangerous the dangerousness of being law enforcement in South Florida. In eighty nine, my partner Kevin Stevens, we were we were the inside arrest team on a on a buy bus for 17 keys of Coke. It turned out to be a rip off. And Kevin got hit twice in the gun battle and our informant died. He was killed in that gun battle. It was yeah. a violent, violent, uh, unlike anything I'd ever seen in my life. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It, it was, was
1: episode five. If you guys want to go back and listen to that. No, yeah. it
0: really was. Um, it, it was a, it was a violent time, especially if you are in the business, you know, we oftentimes think like, um, many multiple people were being shot left and right. And that's not really the case. It's mostly people who are in the business that were the casualties of their drug war, um, either trying to enforce it or trying to stop it or being a part of it. Uh, the average Joe Schmo or, or someone else coming out of public supermarkets really was not in danger. It was the people that were in the business, but it was, it was prolific. I mean, let's not, I don't want to, um, Glossed it over. It was a prolific time. And, um, you know, people talk about Miami Vice, and Miami Vice is a classic case of art and life kind of melding together. Um, although a highly stylized version, yet nonetheless, um, a lot of the truism there. They kind
1: of, so yeah, let's, I mean, uh, we, we always joke a lot of the DEA guys when they get started about the same time as Murph, Miami Vice seemed to be an influence. But if you look at that show and look at what was really going on, like you say, highly stylized, but I think they did a pretty good job of capturing the danger, you know, the type of things that were going on. And I mean, it was, I mean, now the one thing I thought was accurate too, when you, when people think you look at the, what the bad guys are driving in their cars and all the toys and trinkets they have, I mean, that re- in a sense that hasn't changed, but back then that was just, people were just buying st- You got boats, you got airplanes, you got cars. I mean, you had all that stuff back then, didn't you?
0: Yeah. We also didn't have the, f- the forfeiture seizure laws that were enacted due to that. So those type of of, um, of luxury items were easy to come by and they weren't, um, I mean, they definitely stood out having those things, but it was not uncommon for me to be a young man and go into Uh, regimes or go into Ensign Bitters or some other club that's no longer in Miami and walk past three Ferraris, you know, on the way in, it just was commonplace. And, and, you know, what happens is you become desensitized to that opulence because you're seeing it all the time everywhere. And it was, it was almost like those people were trying to announce themselves as being in the drug trade uh, via their, uh, Jewelry, their cars, uh, their boats, um, their penchant for um, extravagance—you know—and it made Steve's job and my job a lot easier, to be honest with you. I
1: yeah. mean, it's kind of like a red sign over here. Hey, look, I'm the dope dealer. But it good reminds me too. I was pulling up the episode number two. Steve, twenty three. Luis Navia. Yeah. Luis kind of did the opposite of that. He wanted to stay low key. He, I mean, this Luis was coming out of what was it, Venezuela? 26 yeah. tons of coke. Yeah. yeah. They popped him on a ship. And it's like, but he but he actually said, he said, look, he never carried a gun. He wanted to stay below that lifestyle because as things went on, it made him a target. And all, a lot of these guys that got hit, it was easy to target them. Why? Because you got no visible means of support. Um, you're driving these, uh, you know, $200,000 car living in a $5 million mansion and um, yeah. like, say, partying and buying stall every
0: night at the club. Well, Steve will also tell you that the cartel after a while came out with a manual. And the manual told them, you know, cut the grass, leave the house every day at nine, come back at five, um, don't have large barbecues. We actually, this manual will get passed around by many members of the cartel. And we actually uh, came, stumbled upon one of them on one of our cases one time. And it was actually like a little handbook telling these guys, listen. Don't call attention to yourself. Pretend like you have a regular job. Talk to the neighbors, but don't talk too much. You know, be friendly, but don't be, you know, in their business. And, like, you know, um, go get the mail out of the mailbox. You know, all that kind of stuff.
2: Teaching them how to blend into the regular yeah. society. Yeah. It was, you know, and the other thing was not only were they flashy, but, uh, you know, when you come out and you've got three or four or five pagers on your belt, and they like to show that off because we didn't have cell phones back then. You know, right there is a that's right there is a target. Just follow him, see where he's going, because he's he's doing drug deals.
1: Yeah, you know, it sounds too like um, I, I keep throwing so yeah, it's, it's our marketing, right? Episode fifty nine. Michael Franzese, Mike uh, Murph, and I met him down at the Southern California Gang Conference. Only guy, uh, only uh, capo, capo regime of the Colombo crime family that successfully lead the family and not get whacked. And one of the lessons from him, and that's one of the things he talked about, is they spent a lot of time telling their people. You know, you, you're part of the community, you know, blend in. I mean, so whether it's, you know, drug trafficking organizations or organized crime, an easy way to target these guys were the ones that wanted every they, The young ones that, hey, pay attention to me because now I got bling. Now I got cash. And like you said, and, and the ones that really made it easy for it was the IRS because they'd show up. Mercy, you had your chance. You could have been IRS and walked up to these guys in Miami still and say, hey, can I see a receipt for that car? Where'd that money come from?
2: Yeah, I'll be the first to tell you I would never qualify for an IRS agent. I'm not smart enough. You gotta know where your lane is, you know.
1: <laughs> Stay in your lane. Hey, yeah. So, Michael, let's talk about well, talking about staying in your lane. You, everybody's got to start off too, and their lane is, uh, you know, working patrol. You get out of the academy, you're working patrol. So, what's it like going from soccer in uh, univ- in New Haven, Connecticut, um, and uh, coming back now to where it's warm and you don't have to worry about wearing a parka? What's it like now hitting the streets in Coral Gables?
0: It was um, a tad bit surreal. Um, but the, 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 I I had a very, my route into law enforcement was not the same as most people's. I did three months of FTO training, field training officer. I had a, a senior officer with me for three months. Each one rotated after 30 days. I did one day in uniform and then I got pulled into a street crime drug task force. And I did that for about eight months. And then I went back to uniform for about. Six months, and then I went into vice, intelligence, narcotics. The reason being is that the department, I feel, um, certain members of the upper echelon of the of the the brass tapped into the fact that I had a good working understanding of the drug culture and drug and drug um, drug the drug world. I grew up with a lot of people who were in that business has did uh, Alex and they kind of knew that I understood it pretty well. So they kind of tapped into that and that's how I ended up going. Miami was having problems. Some of their, some of their um, officers were being burned. So they needed some fresh faces. I had a really good Sergeant uh, and uh, we put together a pretty good um, street crime task force and drug task force. And we worked uh, crazy hours, and we were uh, pretty effective, and that's how it kind of started for me. Um, I did do some time in uniform, and I did, um, you know, the back end of my career, I did uniform before I went behind a desk at the end of my career. But, yeah, um, I kind of went from the academy almost into street narcotics in the blink of an eye.
2: So Did that that cause a lot of jealousy with with the other, other new guys in the agency?
0: Incredible. Incredible. I mean, it was like, yeah, yeah. I remember one lieutenant was um, railing at the chief that how come he's driving this type of car? And I've been given this, this high end, you know, sports type car. And my partner and I were the first people to have cell phones. Um, No one else had them. We, we, but we were successful at what we were doing. And a lot of people didn't understand what we were doing. So it's hard to explain um, the nuances of what you're doing because it's not something you learn in the police academy. In the police academy, you're going to learn the elements of burglary. You're going to learn how to work a, make a traffic stop, how to work a traffic accident. No one's going to teach you how to be a money launderer. No one's going to teach you how to buy cocaine. And if you had that knowledge behind you, and then you're able to, you know, advance it through training, through work, through contacts. Um, it puts you at a different level. I'm not gonna say a higher level, it just puts you at a different level. You got and, a different
1: knowledge base than the rookies, the other rookies mm-hmm. coming in.
0: Yeah. I mean, I was I was in the police academy, and uh, you know, it's like a weekend I'm off, you know, I'm in I'm in my local bar, and this guy walks up to me and he says to me, Hey. I heard you are going to be a cop. And, you know, I know the guy's a doper, and I'm not going to deny it. It's crazy to sit there and say no. And I said, yeah, yeah, I am. He goes, yeah, man, that's cool. That's good. I'm going to tell you something. And I think the guy's name is Ricardo Rico Ray. I'm not sure what his name was. I don't remember. But he goes, you know, everyone is looking for Ricardo Rico Ray. He's in Quito, Ecuador. I saw him at a party. I'm going to, I'll tell you, let me, let me get a piece of paper. I'll tell you the address. So I go back to the academy on Monday and I go, <laughs> hey, listen, uh, I don't know anything. But, you know, this guy told me, and then they had me in the police academy doing meeting a guy at, at a you No, know, a waterside restaurant called Monty Trainers. Oh, yeah. I'm still in the police academy and I'm sitting down with this guy getting information. And then like 10 days later, the FBI picked this guy up. So the department kind of recognized that there's something going on here that goes beyond traffic stops and and you know. Um.
1: Well, let's let's take that incident. Let, let me rewind a little bit. What was it during your youth, as they say, that when when did you know? So at what age you said you were growing up around these guys? What age were you when you realized you understood what it was? Because you can be around. It's like kids who grew up around those kind of folks. They don't they don't really understand it until you get to a certain point. So. When did you know that there was money laundering and dope trafficking going on? You know, in your neighborhood,
0: I had to be maybe ten or eleven years of age. It was like one of those. It was like one How of did those. You find out. It was like one of those Hanna Barbera cartoons where you see the cat and the dog chase each other, and then like all of a sudden the bell rings and they 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 punch a clock. See tomorrow, Fred. See tomorrow, Tom. <laughs> These I watched U.S. Marshals and. DEA, uh, I, I don't even know if they were DEA or Bureau of Narcotics back then. I don't know what you guys were called. But I would watch them chase these guys Monday through Friday, sit next to the bar on Saturday night, and then sit in the church pew on Sunday, and then do it all over again. I was I was like 12 years old, 11 years old. twelve or uh, I, was, I remember because I was riding my 10-speed bike. And in Florida, you got your driver's license restricted at 15. So I was definitely about 12 or 13 years of age. And I used to see this guy named Adnan Khashoggi. Adnan was one of the biggest arms traffickers in the world at the time. The movie Lord of War is based on him. And he would stand under a sea grape tree in my neighborhood every time he was going to get picked up by, by a vehicle. He would leave his office and he would stand under the tree. And I would ride by and I would see him stand under the tree and I would look at him and he must've known that I knew, cause he would kind of like avoid me. And I wasn't going to say or do anything. I am just a kid, but I knew, Oh, he's getting picked up. He's getting picked up. I would, um, where I used to play soccer, we could see from the soccer field, the, what we called corrosion corner of Miami international airport. And I would see Connor air and, and air America. And, um, all these other airlines being loaded up with durable goods going down to Nicaragua. We, I, I watched them from the soccer field paint, repaint the numbers on the tail of the airplanes before they loaded them. And so everybody in my neighborhood was a loader or a kicker. They were in the aviation business. A lot of people in my neighborhood were um, former Korean or Vietnam-era pilots, and they're now flying for major airlines, but they, they missed the adrenaline rush of flying in under the radar and they didn't care if it was women's shoes from Santa Domingo or ganja from Jamaica on their time off. They were flying planes in and out of South Florida. There was a local bar in my town that had a bulletin board and you would go in there and there'd be uh, three by five cards t- pinned up that said, I need, uh, a, 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 I need a, a navigator who can handle a constellation, blah, 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 Cessna, blah, blah, blah. Uh, call me tomorrow by 9 a.m. And that's just how it was.
2: Wow! No kidding. There's that much of an open market.
0: Yeah, yeah, that, that, yeah. I mean, I lived in in Miami Springs, and Miami Springs was my, our zip code was three three one six six. Back in that time frame, it was the largest zip code for uh, drug importation and cash exportation. Wow! Well, <laughs> I literally grew up on the runway of the airport. I mean, the, the 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 airport was part of our playground. You know, I mean we, we we stood on the light towers and had their jets fly over our head as kids.
1: And see uh, how much of this we would have missed if you just glossed over said, Yeah, after I got out of the academy. See, we missed
0: we would have missed all of this. <laughs> so stuff. you know, these people were in the business and they were they weren't nefarious. That's the biggest thing I should say, is that they weren't nefarious. They were a mix of Latins and Anglos and they had a commonality and they weren't um if they lost a load or something didn't work out right, they just shrugged their shoulders and said the next one. They didn't have that cutthroat mentality that started to emerge in the uh, mid-'80s.
2: That's You know, and I know this sounds silly, but everything you're saying, that's why I fell in love with South Florida. It's just exciting. You know, we used to go out and, and we worked a lot of cases with customs where they would have these informants who had coastal freighters, and they'd go down to Haiti and they'd pick up 300 to 500 kilos of coke, bring it back into the the— the uh, loading docks down there where all the cruise ships come in, we'd meet them at midnight, two o'clock in the morning, whatever it was. We'd unload the dope, take it to a safe location. But in Miami, you had all the, all the bridges had the neon lights underneath them. And, you know, and at night that time of night, you're seeing all these high end cars and you know, who's in those cars. It was just, after watching Miami Vice, man, it's like, wow, this really is Miami Vice, especially for a small-town country boy.
0: In, in the book that, that Steve has, uh, Trust No One, I, I, I literally say Miami is Eden's evil twin. And it also is where reality comes to rehearse. And um, it, it, is, it is a very modern-day Casablanca.
2: It really is. I mean, you talk about eclectic. Holy cow! That that's if you look up the word in the dictionary, it's got a picture of Miami there.
1: Yeah, just thinking of Humphrey Bogart too when you said that. Of all the (laughs) joints in the world, you had to pick mine. Yeah, I think that was it. But anyway, but um, well, let's talk about that then. So you 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 quickly get into the the uh, street units and stuff. What kind of cases are you working as you're starting off? What do they have you doing in these? Tell us about the cases and then what your role is in it.
0: Well, in the street crime. When we were working in the Gables, we were all um, in our own car, doing our own thing, looking for street crime, street narcotics. We had a drug trade, small drug trade area in the the, uh, northwest section of Coconut Grove, which is a neighborhood in Miami. Uh, Then when we started working more closely with Miami-Dade County in Miami, we started to branch out and work in their cities. And I remember they put me with the Miami guy. And I'm in the car with him, and this guy is telling me, yeah, over there, should that Burger King? That's where I had my second heart attack, right there. And I'm like, I'm sitting <laughs> here going, the second heart attack? What? <laughs> and you know, stay
1: away from Burger King.
0: Yeah. That's a
2: bad commercial for Burger King.
0: <laughs> well, it wasn't a Burger King itself. It was actually a Burger King parking lot he had a heart attack in, but – You know, he was telling me the rigors of the job and what it had done to him. And he was truthfully this super, super burned out individual who actually passed away. And, um, you know, so we were working and we, I was lucky. I got to work with some very talented people. Um, There was a guy in Miami-Dade County named Tom Blake. They called him Bulldog Blake. And he was one of the best burglary uh, detectives ever to come to Miami Dade and I got to work with him and his team and I learned a lot from him and I got to work with some good people at the city of Miami and also good people in Coral Gables and one thing I was very good at was um being a student of the game I was also very good at learning from other people's mistakes and not making those mistakes myself um I took great note in everything, and people would say something to me just in passing, and they would think it didn't stick with me. And then two or three years later, it would come back, and it would be invaluable. You know, so, yeah.
2: You know, that's that's one of the, in my view, when you're looking at the principles of leadership, everybody's going to make mistakes. You know, so here we got Michael, who is smart enough to see other people making mistakes and learning from it. And that's, I used to tell my folks when they made a mistake, all right, you know, let's get through it. Let's get it corrected. All I ask is you don't make the same mistake again, because if you do, now we're going to have a problem. So, that, I mean, that's it's fantastic that you're employing that principle of leadership right off the bat and learning from other people's mistakes. That was That's what we should all should be doing.
0: And, and the other thing that really helped me a lot is that The friends I had before I was in law enforcement are still the friends I have now. And I stayed very grounded in that sense. I didn't, um, you know, you wear the badge, don't let the badge wear you. And I always had a philosophy that handshakes go further than handcuffs. And I tried very hard, especially when I was in uniform to, um, proactively do a lot of community policing. And you have to recognize when you're in law enforcement, the difference between a bad guy and a guy having a bad day. And, you know, not everybody has to go to jail. Uh, there are people who need to be in jail. There's no doubt about that. I put a lot of them in jail, but there's sometimes there comes that time when you go, you know what? Um, just, just don't do it again.
1: So let's talk about one of the, um, Couple of cases, you know, that you're working on, things that impacted you. Like said, you're watching things go on. Like, um, was there one or two particular cases while you were in the street crimes unit that still stand out to you today? That you worked out, that you look at, and you go, either it had a big impact on you, or it had an impact because you really felt at some point you made a difference.
0: I don't think any of us um, in this conversation are ever going to know the impact we had due to the work we did because it's a lot of it's ancillary. Um, there's somebody or something going on right now that was definitely touched by the work you did. You just don't know it. But one of the things that stands out was, um, I had come out of the street crime and I was in uniform and that's when I had my first shooting. And what happened in that situation was we had some home invaders who a police officer had seen, uh, getting into a vehicle, and she the female officer you know n- notified um, on the radio what was happening and we had a, a big car chase type environment and they bailed out and started running i started chasing this one guy and it's truthfully um you know, like out of the movies we're jumping fences we're going through backyards we're ducking closed lines we're rounding garbage cans and he came upon a two-story standalone apartment building that had an external staircase, but the external staircase, the, um, was completely uh, concrete. Like there was no railing, you know, it was a concrete staircase and he started to go up the staircase and I was on the ground coming astride him and, you know, had my weapon drawn and told him to freeze and he had his back to me, and he was in a low crouch, and he turned really fast. And I saw his hands come up. And it's really strange I, I said earlier in the conversation that somebody will say something to you, and it stuck in my head. And what had happened was I remember being on the gun range like two years earlier, and the and the instructor I talked about a backstop, like what happens when the bullet goes through somebody? What's behind that person? What's the backstop? And you know, behind him was a window, and I was concerned that if I shot him, it might go through the window. But at the last second, I could see the webbing of his fingers as he as he came up. I saw his fingers like this, and I know it was hard for your audio uh, audience to hear this, but I saw the gap in his fingers, and I reflexively pulled the gun back, and as I was as I was firing it, and uh he thought he was shot. And he shuddered and kind of uh, quivered. And then I came around the staircase and grabbed him by the peak of his hair on his forehead. And we um, came down the stairs and uh, he got handcuffed. And I was still on probation. I just, I was still like within my year of probation. And I thought, well, this is going to your work or not work in my favor. And after securing him... Other officers arrived and I went to go put him in the patrol car and I put him in the back seat and I slammed the door. I was so agitated. I slammed the door and it caused me to spin. And when I spun, I saw the second guy in the tree right above me and, uh, got him down. So now we had two of the three or four and that was my first shooting. And that was impactful to me because it it showed me, um, the investigative legalities of how these cases go. You know, my weapon was taken from me. I was given a second weapon. The shooting team came out. I had to go to internal affairs and explain everything and what happened. And so I saw that whole process. So it was almost like a baptism for me. I got that out of the way. and I was like, okay, I know how this works. I, I can, if this ever happens again, I can handle this. You know, the biggest thing with me was I was, from start to finish from the day out of the academy to the day I left i was a v- I, I tried to be a very friendly affable uh, approachable person uh, I, I believe in law enforcement you should be available accessible and approachable sitting in a dark tinted window is not making you accessible you know sitting in a parking garage away from the public is not making you available you know being with your arms folded and your mirrored sunglasses on does not make you approachable you need to be available accessible and approachable but I always went to work each and every day, wanting to be the most non-conflictive individual—no conflict, um, no commotion. But if I had to put you in the ground, I was going to put you in the ground.
1: And you know, Michael, this—you—you you talked about something that really resonated with me because I re- so name dropping. It's remember the old uh, law enforcement training network, uh, JD Buck Savage. Did you ever watch that? No. He would be- so Dave Smith, Arizona Highway Patrol, started doing this thing. It was fun, a training thing called JD Buck Savage. And it was kind of an over exaggerated cop. It's like he'd be doing surveillance, you know, and it just, you know, he, as I was in my mobile crime fighting platform, but one to this day, Dave does a lot of training, him and his wife, uh, Betsy Brantner Smith. One of the funny things was did one of the lines of JD Buck Savage is watch the hands, you know, always watch the hands. And I was doing the same thing. I was, I was in an unmarked car uh, as a police officer, um, doing some sad, you know doing some selective patrol in areas where we had a lot of high crime and I see this kid and i 'm backed away and I see this kid walking across now i 'm in uniform sitting in an unmarked car, but the folks that i 'm looking at can 't see me, but this kid does cross in the street and he 's a member of our local crime family. And he does that thing. He kind of walks by me, pats his you know, waistband like he's got a gun, and then he walks by, and I'm like, what the hell is going on? So I open up the door. You, know, you start to get ready, and I see him unzip his jacket, and then his hand goes in like this, and then he starts to turn around real fast. Well, fortunately, there's like a street light there, and what do I do? That, that's the thing popping in. Watch the hands. Just to your point, you watch the hands. I was probably about a half an ounce away from dropping the hammer on this kid, but all he had was a finger gun. Mm. And I think he was just trying to do that, just to. And I tell you what, like you, I didn't have anybody hiding up in the tree, but I was so fucking mad after that. I mean, personally mad because you go, number one, I go almost shot somebody who was unarmed. Number two, um, it just made me mad because he put me in that position, and it's like I, I think I, I don't know if I don't know if I I think I bent the door frame <laughs> you know, when I got out. But I tried to charge him with terroristic threat, and they said couldn't charge him. I said, do you know how I mean? Do you know how close – I think it would have been good based upon everything, how fast it was going. But still, can you imagine living with that, shooting an unarmed person, and then in a community he was Hispanic? Our city was about 40% Hispanic. That, I mean that just would have been the end of everything for him, obviously, and for me.
0: One, one thing I saw, the transcripts after it was all done, and the uh, internal affairs investigator asked um, the subject, "You know, when the officer told you to stop, what did you do? He goes, I turned and jumped at him. And they said, "Why'd you do that?" And he goes, I, "I just wanted to." And you know, he put himself in harm's way. And the I.A. investigator said, "You're lucky because his reactions were—he's so young. His reactions—he he was able to, you know, simultaneously pull the trigger yet also pull the gun away." And the the Glock, it, it was a Glock. Um, it was a clock nine millimeter at the time, and it it didn't cycle. Because I, I, I limpressed it so fast. I pulled it so fast that the slide didn't cycle. So the shooting team spent like an hour looking for the shell case and it was in the weapon the whole time and then oh. rejected. How yeah. about
2: that? You're muted, Morgan.
1: Sorry. Yes, I am muted. I'm not muted anymore.
2: I Th- need one of those mute un- buttons for you. That's what I need. Well, you're going to pay for-
1: <laughs> you're gonna have to pay for that, pal. That is unusual, too. I've got a Glock 23. Uh, I've never had that happen. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's weird, you know, things that happen during, because normally Glocks are re- pretty reliable. You pull the trigger, Durable. they shoot. You pull the trigger, they shoot. Yeah, Yeah.
0: yeah idiot proof. That's why law enforcement uses them.
2: Yeah. Any cinema automatic, if you don't have that wrist locked, you're going to have that issue, the limp wrist.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So what was the
1: final outcome on that? I mean, uh, you've got a discharge of a weapon, um, obviously guy unarmed, but I think it looks like all the conditions are there for it to be a legitimate use of force.
0: Yeah, justifiable shooting. When they got to this the vehicle that they bailed out of, they found uh, three Miami-Dade raid jackets, two Miami-Dade badges. Um, they found... Wow. They found three handguns and six holsters. So, uh, the these, one guy I chased had dropped a gun on the run when I was chasing his arm
1: These ray jackets and everything. Yeah, yeah. They, yeah, they had really- broken
0: into a Miami-Dade police officer's car and taken a bunch of stuff out of his car. At least one badge, maybe not two, but the, the, the main thing was they took all of his stuff. And they were home invaders, and he was armed when I was chasing him. I did not know that at the time. And he, somewhere on the run, as we went through fences and clotheslines and backyards, dropped the weapon. The canine found the weapon. And um, so we knew we had guns out there because we, they were they had announced on the radio when they bailed out, do we have, you know, six holsters and only three guns.
1: And the guns that were recovered, were they all stolen uh, cop guns too?
0: Yeah. Yes.
1: Wow, that's Holy we had a we had some burglaries in our name. Very rare. We're in a really nice area, but years and years ago, Virginia State uh, Police investigator up there got his car broken into, and that was a thing. I don't know why he left his weapon in there unsecured, but he did. And you know, we had a guy, a detective, do the same thing. He always take cook, took his gun off, stuck it under his seat, and it was all hands on deck. You don't want that gun. Last thing in the world you want is that gun being used. Uh, you know, in a shooting.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: So you, you get cleared on that. So, but where do you go after that? Um, because you start working into, obviously there's, you start getting into bigger and bigger cases. So start telling us, you know, how does, how does it progress from there for you? When do you start getting involved in bigger level cases and cartel stuff and the money laundering and the, the, the trafficking?
0: Well, uh, the biggest thing was we had a, um, we had a we had a, a drug trafficking area in the city of Coral Gables, mostly it was crack cocaine in the in in the north section of Coconut Grove, uh, a neighborhood in Miami. And the crack dealers were dealing out of a physical structure that had lots of open fields around it. Not anymore, it's all built up now. So they would always see law enforcement coming in and they'd either run, hide, hide the stuff, drop the stuff, whatever it may be. So that was my sector when I got hired. Uh, The south part of Coconut Grove was my sector, which was predominantly African-American. And the first thing I did from day one is I just pulled up in front of the place where they sell the crack cocaine. And I didn't hassle anybody. I didn't ask for ID. I didn't chase anybody. I didn't do any of that. I just sat there and read the Miami Herald but what I did was I took the buyer out of the equation and the crack cocaine is no good if they can't sell it. And every day I just took the buyer out of the equation and I, I, I basically drove them out. And so the department realized that, you know, they came to me and said, why are you doing, how, how are you doing this? And I said, because the drugs don't have any meaning if they can't be converted into a monetary instrument they can't be made into money so the focus became on you know we're never going to stop cocaine because it basically grows off a of bush you seize a couple of kilograms of cocaine they will just go back pull more leaves off the bush put them in a pozo pit process them and make more cocaine but if we take the money out of the equation money doesn't grow on trees unfortunately and so with that mindset Uh, We got sent, I got sent over to Operation Greenback at U.S. Customs. And then myself and three other partners eventually became part of a local task force working with the Greenback Customs agents and uh, our DEA liaison uh, that I mentioned earlier. And we hit an incredible home run right out of the gate. We seized $24 million. At the time, it was the largest cash seizure in law enforcement, and that was over like a five-month period, in of which we were the only local agency attached to that. And um, was that out of a single seizure or a combination of seizures that you got the combination of seizures? What we did, we you know, we had to let some money walk, but we were able to seize twenty four four million, uh, no two and a half million of it was like in New York City, and the rest was in Miami. And we um, had had a really good uh, stable of informants at customs. And um, this was in 1990. And so, you know, with the success of that and the amount of income and revenue and resources it brought to the agency, they were like, you know, full steam ahead. You four stay at now you're vice narcotics. You're no longer you know, street crime group, you know, and that's where I was for 10 years.
1: And how were they taking the money? Because you talked about
0: with, now with customs, did you have
1: some asset forfeiture where you could get some of that money to come back and fund the unit and fund your activities and equipment?
0: Yeah. You know, what happens, and Steve will probably agree with me, is that when you are a federal um, agency, you're allocated X amount of dollars per per your, your annual budget. And if you were to have a large cash seizure come your way, it's going to give you a surplus. And next year after that, Washington's going to say, hey, you guys have way too much money and they'll cut your budget. Baseline
1: budgeting. Yep. They cut it right and back. And you to know
0: work. that that money is not always a, a guarantee. So the guys at Customs were happy to get the statistical. You know data, the arrest, the the indictments, the cases, and they were happy to send the cash back to us as endowment. So um, we either took it as proceeds from the seizure or customs oftentimes would um, put it in their account and then very quickly purchase things to us as a gift or an endowment back to us. That's how we kind of worked the law enforcement trust fund an early form of legal money laundering. Uh, you're an abandoned property specialist.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's a shell games, but it is.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that was always a fun part, too, about when you do seizures. Uh, you, you, so And it worked both ways, too. You know, I was at state level when I was in Kansas. We'd get a seizure. The feds would adopt it. They would take 10% and 90% would come back to us if we tried to do it through the state convoluted, you know, everybody yeah, wanted to put exactly. their fingers into it. Yeah. And it was always nice. Always nice doing it. By the way, too, that's the other thing too, feds liked about state and local. Murph, if you had your choice between you writing a title three or going through the state.
2: Oh geez, the state every time. <laughs> it's you know, it's it's like it's like uh, writing an instruction manual versus war and peace.
0: At the time, I had a very good assistant chief of police, a very good lieutenant, a very good sergeant, and they were really uh, proactive about the work we were doing, and they were supportive of what we were doing. And um, the very first seizure we ever had was $240,000, and I remember that almost everyone who had a gold badge showed up to look at it. It was like a show and tell. They all came it's amazing, out. Ooh, isn't it? <laughs> and then I remember like literally like a year later coming in with like eight hundred thousand and having some go, is that it? That's all you got? Oh, okay. Yeah,
2: yeah it's old hat then. It's, yeah, because you know we,
0: we were averaging eight hundred thousand a month for almost ten years straight.
2: Yeah, we did a we did a lot of because I was in group ten there in Miami and we did a lot of work with uh, a retired police officer now, Rick Rogers, with South Miami PD. And we would, when we were making those cash seizures, you know, they got the lion's share because they were typically they were the only local agency, unless we did some takedown. And then if you know, if we need Miami Dade or or uh, or Metro Dade or Miami PD or whoever, you cut them in for ten percent. But this little South Miami PD, bringing in hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, when you call and ask for something, they go buy it for you. It was amazing. Yeah. You know?
0: Yeah. Well, we we brought in so much money at one time that. um the powers that be, you know, Miami Dave was like, Hey, wait a minute, this is happening in our county. We want our guys in there. And so over time our group of four local guys working closely with DEA and customs expanded and expanded and it it, it, it got a little unwieldy towards the end.
1: Yeah. Yeah, everybody wants on board. Mm -hmm. Well, let me ask you a question about that too. I never had a seizure that large. The largest one I ever got was 225,000 out of the trunk of a car. But the funny part is just like you were saying, the funny part is that's the funny part about cops. You get really good cops. It's all about the trophy picture. Not once did it cross my mind. I mean, for what I was making back then, 225,000, I could have lived on that, you know, for 10 years, you know, (laughs) easy, right? But that wasn't the thought that went through your head. It was like, Damn, look at this. It's a trophy shot. You wanted to take pictures. It was bragging rights, you know, at the bar. And it's a. So when you started getting, when you saw that first big pile of money, did it affect you at all? I mean, in in that way, or when you looked at it, how did it affect
0: you? You're looking at a stack of hundreds and you're saying to yourself, this is my entire mortgage. And at first, you see the value equation of it all. And then after a while, it's just like you're counting rocks. you can't have it. You can't touch it. You can't, it's not yours. It's just like counting rocks and counting money as Steve will will tell you is a filthy, dirty business. I mean, a lot of gunk and fiber and human oils stuff come off that money. Money Money's dirty. It really is. I mean, even air quote, clean money is physically dirty. When you think about all the hands that touch it and you know, you're finding it, in bags and suitcases and attics and crawl spaces. And it's got mothballs with it sometimes. And, and it's it, it just it, at first, once again, it's the, not that it's a temptation. It's more of um, it's more fascination. of a, uh, not even a fascination. It's just a, a um, an incredulous mentality. But I was, I was briefly primed about that because of the guys I grew up with would tell me, Hey, so and so has got money on pallets. He's got four people who count money full time for him. So I had heard about these things. I'd never seen it. Now I was seeing it. So it's kind of like hearing about a lion and then going to the zoo and seeing one for the first time. You are going, oh yeah, I know what that is. I've seen it. I've, I've heard about it. Now I've seen it. the The money thing, it, it got, it became, it it became bothersome six seven eight years later because we started having like these steering committee task forces and things and like i can remember we had one case where these guys were going to home invade a house and torture the wife and young child of this guy before they asked where the money was and so we set up a a sting with our ci to take them off before they got to the house. And we'd successfully did that. And one of the people from the steering committee, one of the majors, captains, chiefs, was like, well, we didn't get any money out of it. And at that point, I was like, you know, we're losing our way. You know, we're, we're losing our way here. Um, and the money became um, voluminous and big and fast. And it came in a lot.
2: Yeah, he was freaking all about public safety. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and that's a good can... point you brought up about uh, when you've got that much, my, the biggest seizure I ever made cash-wise was $1.3 million there in Miami. And, you know, I mean, I'm a country kid. I've never seen that kind of cash. And I'm the same way. You're never tempted. And if you are tempted, that's a clue right there that you need to go find a different occupation because eventually you're going to try and, well, let me just take, uh, I don't know, a couple hundred dollars here. And, and you do. And then, you know, well, that was easy. Nobody caught on. And, and it just builds and builds. So if that is a temptation, you need to go find another job because you're getting ready to com- uh, compromise your integrity.
0: Yeah. M- my biggest one-time out-of-the-gate seizure was $6.8 million in one fell swoop. The 22 was an accumulation of four or five months of, of pickups and drops. But the one out of a house well, by myself, meaning myself on my team, is was $6.8 million. And um, nice. at the time, um, I want to say Nicholas Brady. I don't know who the U.S. Treasurer was at the time, but he was in Miami on a on a on a on a fact finding mission. So they brought him out. You know, the guy whose signature was on the money was looking at the money, you know? Wow. We have evidence
1: you're involved in this crime, Mr. Secretary. Look,
0: your name's all over it. Yeah, exactly. You're
1: an unindicted co-conspirator. Hey, let me ask you a a, a corollary uh, to that. We talked about the temptation. How did you manage the issue of that? Because look, cops, as we know too, a lot of good cops. And Murph and I say nobody hates a bad cop more than a good cop. But we know down in Miami, stuff has happened. We know it's happened everywhere, right? So how did you guard against and what steps did you take to prevent not only the temptation for corruption, but when corruption happened, how did you guys handle that? Every
0: Almost every year I was in the task force, someone in our – I won't say my group, I'll say someone in this system. It could be – he said before DEA Group 10, DEA Group 6, could be U.S. Customs, could be a South Miami guy, could be whoever it was. Somebody either committed suicide or went to jail. Mm. Um, the temptation is real. Uh, not to quote uh, Glenn Fry, but I will. You know, the lure of easy money has got a very strong appeal. And um, you don't know what's going on in people's lives, how they're vexed or challenged or what's going on with them we we created strong safeguards and then when we when we made a seizure you know we would be on the scene with the currency and then we would call for an intake team and then that team would come in and the currency we we would be placed in one guy's trunk and then in a locked like hockey bag we had like a hockey bag and we put whatever the The doper's money was in, like I say, it was a big Adidas bag. We'd put that Adidas bag in this hockey size bag, hockey gear bag, padlock it. And one guy would have the key, but the other guy would drive it back. And then two separate guys would follow them back to that, to the money counting area, a room. We had had a designated money count in place. And then from there, we had a sign in sheet and we had, um, we put crime scene tape up over the door. You couldn't come in unless you're on the sheet. Regardless of what your rank was, if you weren't on that sheet, you couldn't come in the room. And then from there, the same team would take it straight to the bank or to the vault until we took it to the bank. So we put in as many safeguards as we could to to stop that. Um, the big corruption comes in when the officers start to become incredibly friendly with their CIs and they start to view the CIs as more of an ally to them than their team. And we saw that a few times, where you know, some guys telling the C.I. "Yo, bro, you're like a brother to me, man." You know, no, you're a tool. Okay, let's get this straight.
2: If he's snitching on somebody today, he'll snitch on you tomorrow.
0: Oh, there's no loyalty, there's no allegiance in this world, and that, and especially in the drug world, there's no loyalty, no allegiance. You know, I, I, after that twenty-two million dollar seizure, the Medellin cartel put a put a contract on me and my my immediate partner. And the reason why was because our name was on a lot of the paperwork. And you talked earlier about the glory shots. I see now on Facebook and other social media uh, outlets, people putting up pictures. Hey, remember this thirty years ago? Hey, remember this twenty five years ago? You don't ever see me in those pictures because I didn't, I didn't want to be in those shots, and I had to be in the shot for the twenty two million because they they made a quite a large dog and pony show out of it, and all of us were in that picture but um, i didn't I didn't take the glory shots I didn't have my picture taken with kilos and have my picture taken with money. I kept a very low profile. I only went on social media like two years ago because I was trying to promote some of the work I've done post retirement but for the for the, by and large I've tried to stay under the radar as much as I could up until recently.
1: Let me ask you a question about – you said there were some guys that committed suicide and some guys that went to jail. Of the ones that committed suicide, was it because of the stress of the job or was it because they faced the prospect of going to jail?
0: Face the prospect of going to jail. What
1: was uh, what was um, when when some of the I don't want to get into details because I don't want to expose people's names. But just if you kind of kind of like gave a, um, a a thumbnail sketch of like one of the cases that involved somebody going to jail. How did how did that information come about? Was it from like things like internal audits or a CI saying something or you know another law enforcement source? How would most of these cases
0: get started? You know I I don't want to. um Tiptoe around your question, but you view, you basically hit on all three or four methods of how these things came to light. Sometimes was the CI said something. Sometimes there was an irregularity in what we were seeing. Sometimes there was something that came up on like another wire from another agency that might say, "Hey, you know who's this guy?" Because he just got mentioned. So, um, you know, Steve. Knows, I mean, that
1: had to be tough too. I mean, watching one of your own people. It, I mean, it, it's was, the right it was very tough. It, uh, I
0: mean, I, I you know, one of the things I, I I try to tell people, and I, I will, you know, say this both to to you, Steve, and to you, Morgan, is the three of us, as well as our compadres, we learn to live and thrive in that environment. But the biggest thing is, we learned how to exit it. We learn how to get out of it and move on. Put it in perspective, and put it as a chapter of our lives. And that's the biggest thing: is, is it's, it's okay to be good at what you do, but you got to know when it's time to leave too. And um, we uh, we had some. I had some very difficult times in the undercover days. I um I don't I don't want to I don't know. I'm, I'm reluctant to say names and places, but Steve knows. We don't names.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, was but-
0: I was there, Steve, the night that mm-hmm. one of your agents shot another agent in a drunken stupor and killed him.
2: Oh, geez. I remember that. Yeah. I was already gone from Miami by then. I
0: was there. And and the agent that got killed, I trained. He had come from another field office and knew nothing about Miami or money laundering. And he sat with me for six days straight. And I trained him in what we were doing. And he was on my team. And the other agent was, um, he bounced between two or three of our teams. And uh, it was after it was after a holiday party, Um, very sad time. Um, I'll give you one
2: other example, and and uh, you know DEA is not perfect. We had an agent who was a very good friend of mine, who worked considerable undercover. He was Cuban American. Um, His wife was an agent. He was. uh, I I don't want to. He's still living, so I don't want to say something here that I would get sued over, but. He got transferred back to South Florida as a group supervisor, and his group was doing money pickups. And he had become so confident in his undercover abilities that he went and did a money pickup by himself. Well, what do you do? If you got seven, eight $800,000, a million dollars, what do you do with it? So he walked into the bank. He badged them and said, I need to have this counted and then, you know, deposit into his personal account. What just so happened, there was an IRS agent or an IRS, I don't know if he's an agent, but an IRS representative at the bank that day. And the teller went to the manager, the manager went to the IRS, and they're like, this just doesn't sound right because this DEA never does it this way. And so they started an investigation. He ended up going to prison, which is where he should have been because he stepped over that thin blue line to the bad side. Lost his career. His wife lost her career. Now he's a convicted criminal, convicted felon. It was hor- and he was involved in one of the highest profile cases that DEA has ever participated in. And, and I'm just not going to say it because I don't want to get sued over it.
0: Yeah. You know, it's funny because in the movie that came out in the early 1980s, Extreme Prejudice, the uh, drug Nick trafficker
1: Nolte.
0: says to Nick Nolte, you know, why don't you just come work with me? And Nick Nolte says, um, you can buy me. You could always buy me, but you can't buy the badge. And one without the other ain't no damn good.
1: Hey, players, that is the end of part one. Part two comes out, as always, on Tuesday. In the meantime, go check us out at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. Also, go check out our website, GameofCrimesPodcast.com. We've got a lot more information there, including our book list. Any book written by our guests will be listed there. In the meantime, go check us out also, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. It's where we put a lot more content you won't hear on our regular podcast. We go into a lot more topics, and folks, it is a lot of fun. So go check us out, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. In the meantime, everybody stay safe. We'll see you tomorrow for part two.